five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. happening good morning welcome everybody to another edition of 15 minutes of flame and a bit of a rabbit theme a holdover from yesterday's show where we uh started to go down the rabbit hole i haven't worn this sweater in a long time this used to be one of my favorite sweaters how's it look with the turtleneck i like it with the turtleneck it gives me kind of that that kind of euro look uh yeah white rabbit if you were here on the live stream, you would have seen the Jefferson Airplane performing White Rabbit on the Smothers Brothers. Think about that for just a minute. That's a that's a primetime mainstream program. And uh, I mean, they're they're taking people on a trip during that uh, during that show. They have the, the the gel projection in the background, made famous at Winterland and Fillmore. And uh, they're, you know, they're talking about drugs. They're talking about taking mushrooms and smoking Caterpillar and losing your head. And and the song is great. The lyrics are great. Uh, Grace Slick is really fucking sexy. She's a Scorpio. That's a moment for primetime TV. There's a lot of kids thinking, I want to go to San Francisco. Let me get out there. I want some of that. If you really like put that up against, you know, somebody who's living in the Midwest somewhere, what Midwest city could we use? How about Davenport, Iowa? They're in Davenport, Iowa. They tune into the Smothers Brothers. They're 16 years old. And they see that performance, they're like, I'm out of here. Davenport, Arriva Durchi. And that's what a lot of people did during that period of time. It was this major sweep westward. I always seem to be ahead of these currents and tides with migration. It's really interesting because we moved to California in 1965. And the summer of love hadn't started yet. It was that weird interregnum. And then by 66, 67, uh, 68, where everything starts to get really dark, there's a mass migration of people that go to California, and particularly San Francisco. So I grew up in the Bay Area, and but I we got there first. And then when I made my next big move in, in my life, like for me... Uh, I moved to Seattle, and that was in 1989. And that was just before, like, a bunch of Californians 
started to sell their homes and go to Seattle. In the Northwest, Portland got a few. Seattle was a big repository of Californians wanting to spend their uh, reinvest the uh, equity that they were able to extract from the sale of their home. And then, of course, grunge happens. So I'm I'm kind of swimming in the grunge thing. And if I was maybe eight years younger, it might have been interesting. I didn't find grunge to be all that interesting, to be honest with you. I saw the cultural relevance, but I was around it. And uh, it was a lot of flannel and pants that kind of got cut off at the knees. Uh, yeah, it, it didn't, it wasn't all that interesting. The music wasn't all that interesting to me. I got it, but I just wasn't that into it. That was when I started doing it, like, inter, what they call international music. That was world music. So I was really searching for that interesting uh, kind of fourth world fusion of electronics, Peter Gabriel, Brian Eno. Like that stuff was much more interesting to me at that time than what was going on with um, kind of alternative music or, you know, postmodern, post-punk. Some of it was kind of cool, but I wasn't a huge fan of the whole grunge scene. It was the first time in my life I started to feel old. So I was there, right? I, I made that wave. Then I did move to San Diego. I'm not sure if I was ahead of the wave there, although San Diego blew up. I mean, it's like, you know, everybody started moving there because it was affordable and the weather was nice and the people were nice and so it's kind of again kind of a bit of a head of that wave that was in 2000 2002 and then i moved to texas in 2012 and what happens everybody fucking comes to texas right so if you want to know where to move just follow me like wherever i move next follow me and you'll be in the right place theoretically and I don't, I don't plan these things out. It just, it just happens that way. And that's kind of how the universe works. But uh, yeah, think about that though. How, how just mind blowing that was for, for people in the middle part of the country who had no concept, no, no uh, context for what was going on in San Francisco. They're like, yeah, get me there. Russ Winter, who shows up on Fridays, um, grew up during the 60s. And he was not like that. You know, he was the guy that was just not into it. And there are people that are that are kind of like that. Whatever you, whatever you, whatever you think of uh, George W. Bush, he's, he's not a flower child. You know, he's, he's one. And even Trump, Trump grew up in the 60s. He didn't go to San Francisco with flowers in his hair. He stayed in New York and tried to accrue in the mass of fortune. So there were other things going on in the 60s. By the way, I don't know about Russ. I don't know what Russ was doing during the whole draft thing. I've never asked him. I think he might have had something like a physical deferment, but a real, not one of these fake-ass physical deferments like George Bush. I'm going to go be a pilot in the Texas National State Air Force. Oh, good. Good. You know, his old man, when he was uh, in World War II, and a shitty pilot, by the way, he used to brag to people on his uh, aircraft carrier that he was going to be president of the United States one day. He knew. He knew. 
it was going to happen. It was already a done deal. That's how these things work. All right. We have a lot to cover today. Uh, if you miss Astro Weather, uh, we're on the YouTube channel. You can check it out. I'm there eight o'clock every day talking about some of the aspects today. I covered the in conjunct with the moon and the sun and where the moon is headed into its full phase. So, um, and also really got into as much as I could the star of the day. And I pick one person and I kind of detail, I find somebody who I think is interesting or funny. Uh, and today it was Marie Louise von Franz, who is really interesting. And she was Carl Jung's secretary and she became a peer, right? She went from vertical to horizontal with Jung and she's a Capricorn. And she took that Capricornian path from the desk out front to her own office and uh, having some very seminal works and a pretty significant contributor to uh, the Jungian community. So it's a, I think it's interesting, particularly because of the, of the synastry chart between her and Jung. And you can just see it, right? You can see the push. You can see the mentorship. You can see the potential for the opportunity for the new thing. Um, and this is when I think astrology really works, right? And it's placidus. It's not severial. But I can make a case you know, for the next couple of hours for Placidus. I've been doing astrology since pretty hardcore since 2008, 2009, when I really started to kick in and uh, read for clients, you know, that's, that's, that's a, you know, it's 13 years, right? 14 years now. It'll be 14 years really in uh, uh, August of this year. I've done, I've done over 10,000. I haven't calculated it, but I'm sure I've done over 10,000 hours of readings, which puts me in the uh, Malcolm Gladwell territory. And so some people, I, well, why do you do Placidus? Why, do, why, why, how come you don't do sidereal? Well, it's because I have, I got a track record of success with Placidus astrology, both from kind of a mundane perspective and also as a practitioner. I get it. I understand why people would, well, this is really where everything is at. Yeah, well, sometimes things change. So, and I've talked about this before, right? Jose Arguez changes the Mayan calendar. Uh, you have, um, what's his name? Ra Uruhu coming in and changing astrology and bringing in human design. Uh, and then you have, uh, what's his name? Uh, I, I always forget the guy's name. But he's the one that does the next iteration of what Ra Uruhu is doing. And I know somebody in chat will know it. I just, I don't really pay. I pay attention to people that I think are important. And he's okay. The Gene Keys guy. The Gene Keys guy. I think he's a, I think he's a little, he's a little wokeity woke. In my humble opinion. He's a, he's a little on the, He's a little on the softy, progressive side. You can be, but not for me. Anyway, uh, let's get into the show. We got a lot to talk about. And I do want to talk about, right at the jump, True Ham Science. You want to get your new year off to a good start. You want to take care of your health. You want to start a new regimen. It's Capricorn, right? Mercury retrograde. Think about what you need, uh, what you're able to do. What you, what you need to do, what you're able to do. And I am a firm believer 
in the power of CBD. I get my CBD at night with the gummy. I also have some other CBD I use during the day, but this is, I've talked with, I've talked with Chris about this on the show. CBD is kind of a practice. You know, it's, if you, let's say you take um, uh, vitamin K and D on a daily basis, or you take liposomal C on a daily basis, CBD is in that category. It helps you regulate a lot of the things that go on in your body, including inflammation. So if you are looking to make a, put a stake in the ground with your health for 2023, this is a good place to start. And as always, if you go to triumphscience.com forward slash ref forward slash 23 and order $100 or more, what are you going to get? You're going to get free product. Chris will throw you some goodies, maybe a couple of gummies. So you can experience gummy land, $150 and more. You get free shipping. And I can't stress um, how great it's been to work with Chris in 2022. And I'm really uh, looking forward to see what he comes up with in 2023. we've, We've been really good. You guys have been great. Uh, helping him build his business and it's an American business. It's a local business. He lives in freaking Austin, Texas. And you know, this is what we want. We want to support people that live. And I, and I do this, right. There's JJ who I, you know, I bring up her jewelry from time to time. She lives here uh, in the Midwest in Illinois. I got my friends, lady Artemis and Bubba and they have their jewelry line and they're, I love supporting people that are here in this country. If I was in England and you had a business, I'd support you, right? I would support you. But, and maybe I can still support you, but it's harder to get stuff from England than, and than to the States. So I'm an equal opportunity supporter. If given the logistics, but the logistics are are not always that easy. But if I was there, trust me, England, I'd be there for you. Just like if I was in France, I'd be there for you. Or Germany, I'd be there for you. Must be my Mars and cancer and all that juicy nationalism. Anyway, but for this country, I want to support people that actually create products here. I think it's a good thing. All right, we have a lot to cover. Of course, got to go into Chataria. The absolute best chat on the whole damn internets. Uh, and Chataria really comes alive. Well, they come alive here. <laughs> this, this is a uh, this is a group, right? This is a real group. They know what's going on. They know the score. All right, let's see who we have. DJ MC, there's my man, Michael. What's going on, brother Mike? Thomas. Thomas Jordan, 23 Skidoo. Morning, folks. McCarthy needs to be applying a little green rosetta to make the muffin better. It is new bake shop job. That is pretty good. I like that. 23 Skidoo, of course, being the uh, the name of the famous movie. Well, not really famous. Infamous with Jackie Gleason and Groucho Marx. And it's an acid movie. Jackie Gleason and Groucho Marx were taking acid at the time. I've never seen it. I got to watch it. I've seen I've seen clips from it. 
and Groucho became a big acid head. He was into it. Hollywood was getting dosed up. Cary Grant was a was a big acid head. Jackie Gleason was dropping acid. Uh, Groucho Marx. There, there was a story about how he uh, how he dosed and started to listen to Bach, and he and he and he related to people how Bach absolutely brought him to tears when he was tripping. <laughs> like, wow, because Bach is about as close to God as you get with music, about as close to God. And I'll use the, you know, Bach was very religious. He was a very religious Christian guy, right? So when you have somebody like Groucho Marx, who is probably one of the most irreligious people up until that time, switching on and weeping over Bach and the beauty of the music and the beauty of creation, the beauty of God, that's what you call a major pivot. Wendy says, the beautiful one is here. Hi, Wendy. Good morning. Who else? A Huckleback. What's up, Buck? Double K, Catherine Kramer, gracing us with her presence. The trickster, Lyle Coyoto, joining us right at 9-11 a.m. Beth Berry at 9-11 a.m. What's going on, Double B? Uh, the 9-11 a.m. crowd, which includes the classy one, Sony. Morning, Sony. Happy birthday to you. We missed your, did we miss your birthday? It was right after Tom's, wasn't it? Or right before? So it was either Friday or Sunday. I apologize, Sonny, but I know you're in the mix. And I hope you're I hope you're doing well. Let's see, who else do we have? Marie. Marie. Marie-Louise Van France. Good to see you. Who else do we have? Rocky. What's happening, Rocky? Equicentric. May wisdom reign and joy abound. I like that. Miss Nakia checking in. Long time no see. What's happening, Miss Nakia? We're always here. The sign is on at 9-11. Come on in. I remember being 10 feet tall. Oh. Reminds me of XTC. Sounding a lot like ecstasy. I feel like I'm walking and I'm 10 feet tall. There she is. The Lordess of the Rings. JJ. What's happening, JJ? JJ. Uh, Jefferson Airplane on Cavett. They made the rounds. Lisa W. Good morning, Lisa W. Good morning, Lisa W. Who else do we have? CC. Fantastic. Hi, Fran. People on the podcast side is when is he going to just get through this fucking shit? JJ, I lived in Seattle from 95 to 2000. I was gone by 95. I lasted one year in Seattle. It was my Saturn return. Boy, was it hard. <laughs> oh, man. It was so hard. And I listen, I contributed to the difficulty. I made it hard. I was so. It was such a weird time. It was a difficult. There were some good things. I couldn't notice the good things. Sometimes that's how life is, right? You just don't always notice the good things. They're right in front of you. And you just don't notice it because for whatever reason, you got at that time, I had some shit going on. And I felt like I was being 
Well, as a projector, it wasn't being recognized. I didn't know it at the time, but that's what it was about. And I was so miserable that I, I was married. I chased my wife away. That was terrible. I was so miserable. She says, I'm out of here. I can't be here. I don't blame her. I don't blame her. I probably would have left too. And then when she left, I was, I was even more miserable. Oh, my God. Like, think of, all right, if you've ever been to Seattle, think of your wife leaving you, and it's winter in Seattle, where it gets dark at like four o'clock, and there's rain, and sometimes there's snow, and that year there was snow, and after a while, it wasn't really fun, and you're going through your Saturn return, oh, it's just like, fuck, this is not fun, it's not fun. And I was working at a job that I really didn't like. It was just, you know, it was one of those moments in time. And Seattle is not a friendly city. For anybody that lives in Seattle, bless your heart. And you watch the show, bless your heart. But I, I just don't, I, it's, there's a thing called the Seattle chill or the Seattle freeze. And I've talked to people that have moved there. They're like, I can't get any traction with this community and these people. They're just chilly. That was my experience. That was my experience. And God, I remember there was this one, you know, and I'm like 29. I think I just turned, I just turned 29 that September in 1989. So I'm really in the kind of the, the you know, the, the dead center of my Saturn return. But I was 29, right? So I was still at that time, you know, oh, geez, my ex-wife's gone. I, I need some connection. Or my wife is gone. I need some connection. And um, so I'm looking around. And I, okay, well, you know, I'm going through my Saturn return. I know I'm going through my Saturn return, but who can, you know, who can I connect with? And I remember um, there, was this, there was this busser who worked at um, this restaurant that I worked at. And she was really cool. And, and um, she had lost her father, right? She was younger than me. She had lost her father. And, you know, we were hanging out. And I really, I kind of liked her, right? I'm like, wow, wow you're kind of cool. But I just remember, like, the two of us being in her apartment somewhere around Cap Hill, you know, kind, kind of drunk, to, you know, two people sort of kind of clawing their way through you know, their own version of the dark night of the soul. And, she, and nothing, nothing happened between me and this person. And the reason why nothing happened was because we were too far into this involutionary process that, that we couldn't really understand, right? But in this moment in time, we kind of had each other. It was a weird kind of moment of being connected but also not completely connected because we were so wounded, right? It was, it was a heavy time. And then I, I decided that I was going to, it was right around uh, Easter and I decided to stop. Okay. I'm going to stop drinking. And every, you know, it was uh, Mardi Gras. It was Mardi Gras. So I think my Mardi Gras was on fat Tuesday. It was the day after Mardi Gras. Like so after Mardi in Mardi Gras, you're supposed to just let it all hang out. So I let it all hang out the day after Mardi Gras. 
and boy did I let it hang out and then after that I went I I, I decided to to uh, do the Lent thing and I stopped drinking and that was a really important time it was like it allowed me to understand my role and what happened um and you know I got really clear that I wanted this relationship to work but by that time it had taken on too much water and I also didn't understand the baggage that my ex-wife had because she had baggage and she she wasn't showing me her baggage my baggage was up front her baggage was in the in the caboose and that came up later and it was like wow you had this thing going on and I didn't know about it so you don't always really know who you're hanging. And she's a great person. I, I hope I haven't talked to her in years. And I hope she's well. Think uh, what's happening. Had a very, very, very great conversation with Chris and Steve yesterday. We must have been on the phone for over an hour. And it was really funny because I was um, talking to them, to them about the demon cat that lives out here. Whose name is Pippin. He's a demon cat. He's one of those cats that falls into that cliche that cats are evil. He's he's kind of in he's in that camp. So I'm talking about Pippin, and then we got into uh, the the Broadway musical that Bob Fosse uh, wrote and directed called Pippin, which sounds like a really interesting premise for a musical. It's about uh, the son of Charlemagne and opening up to the realm of magic. So we're talking about Pippin. I'm reading them excerpts from the Wikipedia page, sort of the genesis of the uh, of the musical. And then who shows up? Fucking Pippin. He shows up. There he is. You know, he's 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 like he's like the Graf Zeppelin. You know, he just moves in. And he just puts his face right in Max, the outdoor cat's food. Max doesn't do a damn thing. Because he knows he'll get his ass kicked, unfortunately. Um, Robert is definitely the Forrest Gump of astrology, always sitting on turning points in history. His generation personified, but separate from it. So, yeah, I, you know, I am separate from it. I never... It's weird. It's like I'm there to witness it. Like I went to Olympia, Washington. I moved to Olympia and Nirvana was there. That's where they were living. I never saw them, but I would talk to people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Kurt was at the party the other night and he was just so fucked up. And all he did was sit in the corner with his sunglasses on. That dude's really weird. <laughs> Like so, that's all floating around me, and and um, was I went? I think I went to Evergreen Records, pretty good record store. And one day, I told this story. I walk in, and there are promotional cutouts of Nevermind, and you know the baby and the dollar. They're all over the store. They're hanging from the roof, the ceiling, and they're playing. First time I'd ever heard Nevermind was at that store. I'm like, this is gonna be fucking huge, huge. And it was. Uh, let's see, Myra. Hey, Myra. 
I'm not able to watch Robert's Maynard. Well, we're glad you're here and hopefully you're listening. I try to paint a picture with words for those who are internet impaired. Let's see who else do we have. Anybody new? Thor's here. Steve Letro, on to Iowa. Greetings, Robert. Greetings to you. I went to Miami in 1971 and 17. The draft game was uh, H1 in uh, H1 if in high school. The other option was to register and move. So simple. Steve has. I get the sense that Steve has surfed through life. Whenever I read his text, it's like, man, this guy has managed to figure out to be on the crest of a wave. Let's see. Who else do we have? Kabuki Theater. Bo. What's happening, Bo? Happy New Year to you. Yosemite Sam is distracting me. <laughs> Bugs Bunny, you know, I loved Bugs Bunny as a kid. He was, he, Bugs Bunny cracked me up. He was, he, he was one of my favorite cartoon characters. In that whole Looney Tunes world, Bugs was at the top. He was, he was just at the top. Forky, eh, stuttering, eh. Tweety Bird, eh. Uh, I like the, uh, I like the rooster. I say, I say, I say, I say, uh, you know, he was a rooster. He was this cocky rooster. He was always trying to be like a role model for the younger birds. I liked him. Foghorn Leghorn. Big foghorn lake. You can kind of get a sense of a, of a person's typology by the cartoon characters they associate with or relate to. So for me, in the Looney Tunes, where it was definitely Bugs Bunny, foghorn leghorn, and then I would say Daffy Duck. I like Daffy Duck. He was like the duck version of Bugs Bunny, only daffier. Uh... And then outside of that world, I, I did like um, Woody Woodpecker. And that was a Walter Lance cartoon. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Mel Blanc was also the voice of Woody Woodpecker. Mel Blanc was all those voices. He was all those voices. All of them. Is that crazy? He was Yosemite Sam. He was Bugs Bunny. He was all of them. But then you go back and you look at the Bugs Bunny shit. Yeah, what's up, Doc? And he's a cross-dresser. Like, there's weird sexual innuendos. I mean, all I mean, you'll see that in a lot of uh, cartoons. There's this, I was watching this one clip of the Flintstones. And there were these new characters that were introduced. They were, it was like the Flintstones were moving into the flower power period. And I forget the name of these. They were, they were a new couple that moved to the area. <laughs> and Barney says that the, the quote unquote woman of the new couple, the new stone age couple that looked like stone age hippies. Barney says, Oh yeah, Fred, she's one of those, you know, he, she's, or something like that, right? 
like Barney was basically saying, yeah, she's a tranny. <laughs> so the Flintstones had a tranny neighbor. And you think this stuff is new? No. Bugs Bunny cross-dressing? No. Oh, I like the, uh, I like the, I like the skunks too. I like that. I like that French skunk that fell in love with, what was it? A, a cat? He didn't know it was a, it was a cat and, he, and the cat couldn't stand how he smelled, but he was so debonair and he was such a narcissist that he couldn't understand that he wasn't even with the right species. Uh, speaking of cat, there's Julie Sunshine, triple three, the big cat lady. Danny straddles Wokeland. Hard for me to watch sometimes. She's a, Danny is an Aquarius Aries rising. Aquarians, you know, that needle will trend into Wokey sometimes or go the other way. But I love Danny. She's one of the few people I've been able to have a, a dialogue about the JQ with and not take it personally. It was really good. I respect her. User 13. What's up, user 13? Uh, I am Samuel Streaming at Rumble. Yes. Thank you for putting that in there, Tom. Uh, let's see. Yeah, shipping is the challenge when buying stuff. I'm not sure what that's in context with. Danny is an enigma. That that really typifies Aquarius. Brilliant and exuberant, but still holding on tight to woke folks. That's well. That's that. That's what Danny's upbringing was. Danny comes from a deeply progressive background. Like Danny, Danny to me typifies, you know, how Democrats were in, say, the nineteen seventies, because that's what she was raised in. And that's kind of her base and her foundation. So I think Danny has actually moved, um, you know, off a lot of her belief systems and how she was, uh, how she was raised. This is my take. I could be completely wrong, but yet she's still trying to kind of integrate, you know, where she came from and try to do it in a way where it's balanced. I, I don't want to get into Danny too much. I love Danny. I think she's great. Um, I love being on our show. We have great chemistry. We all have our things, right? We all have the thing that is kind of like our Achilles heel in some ways, our Chiron. Uh, let's see. Who else do we have? I think we're almost caught up here. Let's see. Oh, Tamara, Scrubbies. What's happening, Scrubs? Good to see you. Zadamon, Olympia has definitely changed since you were here. So Zadamon must be in Olympia. I loved Olympia. I thought it was great. Olympia to me was kind of like a cross between Twin Peaks and Northern Exposure when I was there. It was this sleepy little backwater state capital town that had Evergreen College, which hadn't lost its mind yet. And um, 
I loved it. I, I lived there for just about two years. And those two years, honestly, were some of the best years of my life. And I was a waiter. And I didn't care. Like I had my I had my my gig completely just laced up. I was a banquet waiter. So even when there was a downturn in the economy, and there was, I still got work because people had to rent that banquet. We get all these uh, you know, banquets and meetings from the state and lobby groups, and I would always work these parties. Some during the holidays, I'd work triples for about two weeks and I'd make a shit ton of cash. Then after that, I, you know, kick back and go back to work sometime in, you know, like the second of like maybe after the first week in January, where things start to pick up again. I loved it. And I didn't have to worry about it. I, it was like, I don't have to be anybody. I don't have to aspire. Cause I've gone through sort of this period where, you know, I was, I went through this phase where I had this aspiration. I was living in San Francisco and things were happening and I moved to Seattle and it all crashed. And I was just monumentally disappointed that on my Saturn return, I had fucked up and was essentially doing things that were really self-destructive until I figured it out and kind of course corrected. But when I got to Olympia, I didn't worry about any of that. It was like, eh, let's just be in the moment. Let's have fun. Let's play basketball. Had a lot of basketball at the Y. Let's hang out. Let's hike. So I have fond memories of that place. And I know it's probably pretty bad. There's a new variant. New variant. Thanks, Lynn. Try Moringa tea for the morning drink. Oh, I wonder if Lynn can grow Moringa down there. Foghorn Leghorn was hilarious. Reminded me of an uncle of mine at the time. He was great. I love Foghorn Leghorn. Uh, CV ain't going away ever. I agree. I agree. Let's see. Who else do we have? Great chat today, by the way. Pepe Le Pew. That's right. I like Pepe. He was such a narcissist. But he was entertaining. He couldn't even figure out that the woman he was trying to seduce was a fucking cat. Like, not even the same species. He wasn't aware of his own stench. But he didn't care. He was classy. He was debonair. He was continental. Uh, let's see. Box cats glitchy today. I was in Seattle to watch it turn from grunge to woke. Now, grunge was the intermediate path to woke. I should get these guys as a sponsor. I drink their fine water all the time. All right. Um, we want to talk about Kevin McCarthy, what's going on. Because that's in the title of the show. This is the shit that happens when empires die. By the way, I have no love loss for Kevin McCarthy. He's just another fucking rhino. He's just a rhino. He's another one of these. He's he's like um, the more uh, palatable version of Adam Schiff. Like, I think he's uh, the representative from Bakersfield. Or Schiff in uh, L.A. I just don't. I don't. Yeah, I don't like him. He he was not great to Trump. And that's the weird thing about Trump. He was not great to Trump at all. But Trump was like, yeah, back to guy, no problem. 
By the way, I have this theory that Trump has been replaced. Whoever this guy is, he is doing massive damage to his base. And there's no energy coming out of this guy. Trump in 2016, and I know it's been a while now, seven years. Seven years since he got on the primary train. That Trump had some energy. I mean, he he was a rock and sock and robot. And he didn't give a shit about what he said. He's I guess apparently still doesn't. But there's you but there was energy there. It was like that it wasn't just that Trump was saying things that other people wanted to say but couldn't say. Anybody could do that. But it was the energy. It was that Sun Uranus conjunction and Mars and his ascendant. It was like he was a lightning rod. Now, I don't know. He's a hitching post now. So I think he's been replaced. But this is what happens when empires die. You get the, you get into very long and prolonged uh, internecine conflicts within your own parties. The parties themselves don't communicate. They're, if you go back into the 70s, there was some bipartisan relationships going on. You know, I mean, you had like Steve Bannon, for instance, um, was kind of a populist Democrat. I mean, that's that's how he grew up. And the Democrats stood up for the working class. Steve Bannon came from a working class family. He's from Norfolk, Virginia. He went into the Navy. Um, you know, and he saw that his class was being underrepresented, right? Who's going to look after the common man? And the Republicans at that time weren't that interested. You know, they, they were much more interested in their corporate relationships and it, advancing uh, capitalism at the expense of the worker, right? So Steve Bannon was not into that. But then he realized at some point that the Democrats were essentially becoming what the Republicans used to be, but with a really disturbing set of values. So that's when he morphed back over to the right and started to embrace nationalism. But now... And that's what Trump jumped on, right? That's what he jumped on. That's that's Steve Bannon helped Trump get elected. And you're seeing this conflict between the more, you know, radically conservative. It's it's sort of like, you know, okay, we got fucked over by the Democrats. We got fucked over by the rhinos. And you've got 20 members of Congress who voted yesterday for Jim Jordan. And I guess you get to lose four times. In, in what fair system do you get to lose four times? Should be three times and you're out. That's generally how it works. Baseball, you get three strikes, you're out. Every inning is defined by three outs. But I guess they're playing softball. So they get four. Uh, and I guess uh, McCarthy will have his fourth vote today. 
so there's a theory that they're not going to be able to come to an accord. And this guy, Hakeem Jeffries, who is a Democrat, is going to slip in and become Speaker of the House. It's not out of the question, right? As you see the, uh, the Ouroboros on the right devour itself. And I, and I think Trump has some culpability here. I think he has some culpability. Because I think Trump tried to appeal to the middle on the Republican side. I mean, hell, he hired uh, Mitch McConnell's wife to sit inside his administration. She was there the whole time, Elaine Chow. You don't think he's trying to appeal to the middle? He absolutely was. When you look at Trump's hires, outside of Bannon and uh, Jeff Sessions, none of them were really radical. They weren't really radical. When I say radical, meaning like, yeah, we got, we got, we got to fork off from how business has been done. Didn't really happen. And in fact, Bannon got run out of the White House by his son-in-law. Anyway, this is what happens when empires die. The 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 op, the government number one whatever whatever it is post coup 2020 they can't even agree on where they're going right so you you have more of the far right the hardcore right Gates Jim Jordan uh, Chip Roy Chip Roy should be Speaker of the House by the way but you have you have this and they're like out for blood. They're like, fuck you. We're, we're fucking tired of having to take a backseat to the Democrats and you asshole rhinos. We're tired of it. This is our one chance to get somebody in a position that uh, you know we can get behind. And that's what's happening. And then you have, you know, the rhinos, which they're just terrible. And, you know, these guys on the, on the far right, they're not, you know, they're not spotless. But at the very least, they're consistent. You know what I mean? They're consistent. And the rhinos are not, they're, they're consistently weak. And Mitch McConnell did everything he can when he was in the Trump administration to appear like he was supporting Trump, but he couldn't wait till Trump left, I can guarantee you. And he's probably behind the scenes working with that little shit fuck, Lindsey Graham, and all these other rhinos to get him out. He was probably in deep collusion with Pelosi and Schumer and all these other, well, they're all shit bags. They're all shit bags. But, you know, the, the far right side, you know, they're believing in the system. I know Christine is probably burning up uh, chat right now but this is what happens when empires die they get into these conflicts and it's just it's dysfunctional it's utterly dysfunctional and i've seen it on a local level i've seen how dysfunctional uh, local politics are they just are and anytime you try to um insert yourself into the process unless there's an overwhelming majority of people that support that insertion. And there are places 
uh, where that does happen. I did that interview with the mayor of Atwater in California, and he had it lined up, man. The city manager and the city council, they were all on the same page. He went through about five city managers. By the way, I, don't, I think city managers should be abolished, but that's another story. And they, they voted to stay open during COVID. They were like, fuck you, right? Like, we're staying open. We're not closing down. We're going to support. Yeah, they did the mass thing and whatever, right? But they managed to wiggle off of Newsom's hook. And I, I do think that with the right demographic, you can have the right local response. Here in Texas, we had Rockwall. Rockwall was like, fuck you, Abbott. We're, we're not shutting down. We are not shutting down. We're staying open. And guess what? They couldn't do jack shit. Right? The city government was had, all these city governments were dealing with medical muscle coming down from the hospitals. Oh, I don't want to be a part of a lawsuit. Oh, I don't want people to point their finger at me and say, you're the reason why all these people died. Well, guess what? That's probably true. But not in a way that you might interpret that because of the enabling that went on and they didn't get it man they just these thick-headed people just did not get it and they may have gotten it a little bit but because people were telling them what to do were pointing out their flaws they weren't going to budge they were not going to budge at all Because there were a couple of people in the city council when this was a big, and there was a lot of falderall over it. There were people in the city council. There were some smart people there. But this one person who was pretty smart, we had a meeting with her. And we had a meeting with her. She was trying to get reelected and a city council person. And she reached out to us, right? Like she was smart. She reached out to our niche of her group and um, she told us, yeah, I've been vaccinated. I want to travel. And it's like, great. Aren't you listening to what we're telling you? No, she was tone deaf. Well, she lost. And I think part of it was because she turned a bunch of people off that night. And it was, it, it was just, it what, I wouldn't say it was her arrogance, but more of her ignorance with a touch of arrogance. Anyway, but this is what happens. And I guess we're going to have another another vote today. Uh, but when are they going to leave? Right? They're going to leave, what, tomorrow? Maybe Friday. We got a full moon coming up in cancer. That's going to be very interesting. And I would hope, like, I don't, I don't really expect a miracle. What I do like is I do like wrenches in the system. And that's what I'm hoping. I hope they get a good wrench in the system, a monkey wrench in the system. So that kind of fouls up the process. The bad process, not the good, not the more um, efficient 
an elegant process. That's a whole different story. But, you know, we're, we're in, the world is in a pretty challenging place if, you, if you're not paying attention. And even if you put on the Yosemite Sam white hat, his hat here is a little on the, on the beige yellow side. But if you put on the Yosemite Sam white hat and look at the whole white hat uh, world, white hat, black hat, you know, the world according to 107, it doesn't take into account who's still here on the planet, who's still here in the United States. What are you going to do with, and I've, I've, I was talking about this yesterday with uh, Yacht Boy. And what uh, if, if you have not seen videos, and they're out there, of youth, inner city youth, urban youth, almost exclusively black in places like Florida, Atlanta, Chicago. You know, you got 13-year-old kids graduating from middle school, and they've all got guns for their graduation present. And they're and they're they're sporting their guns. These are not cheap guns. And I've been seeing these videos for a while now, right? What do you do with those people? What do you do with essentially an underclass that has been unfortunately weaponized? Like people don't ask these questions. Like, how do you get into a cycle of reformation? And that's just one like sliver. It's a pretty big sliver. But how do you like turn that ship around? And it's a lot more prevalent than you think. Then you've got the woke side who are just fucking nuts. Just nuts. You know, they're just waiting for the new thing, thinking it's going to be rebellious. How do you turn that around? Now you've got a whole group of people who are grossly overweight as a form of social rebellion and just absolutely flaunting. I'll use the word obese. They want to make the word obese illegal. It's hate speech against weight challenge people. And shit, we all have weight challenges. I was a fat fuck a couple of years ago right? Go back and look at my old videos. I don't look good. It's not about being fat or thin. It's about being healthy, but it's like, screw you, screw health. What do you, how do you, again, how do you turn the ship around with these people? How, how do they get the gospel of the light going on, right? The light bulb going on right up there. I don't know if the white hats are capable of turning that light on in the attic. I just, I just don't, I don't, it, it's great. Like, you know, people getting locked up by the way, uh, the doctor, the good doctor sent me an image of Hillary Clinton. Looked like she was on a morgue table, right? I was like, Oh, that's interesting. I, I, I think Hillary Clinton died in 2016. I think she died on 9-11, 2016. And whoever walked out of Chelsea's apartment was not Hillary Clinton. And whoever we've been seeing since then 
was probably a clone or who knows what, right? So, you know, there's some weird things going on, but how do you address the, the massive social issues and turn that aircraft carrier around? Shit like that takes a generation. It's not going to happen overnight when the White Hats come riding into town. I'm sorry, it's not. What are you going to do with Europe? Europe has been flooded, absolutely flooded with, unfortunately, barbarians. The barbarians aren't at the gate. They're inside the gate. Like, how do you deal with that? Do you think uh, Rishi Sunak is just going to fire up the British Royal Navy and start loading people onto those ships and taking them back to Afghanistan or, or Iraq or Libya or the Sudan? Uh, no, that's not going to happen. Sorry. Now, if you're the French, you will send them on ships and ship them off to England, which they have, and the English don't like that. <laughs> The French are like, fuck you. Fuck you, England. Uh, very funny, but I guess they they looked at what uh, Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantos, Ron DeSantis. Uh, Ron DeSantis is a plant. He's a turtle on the fence post. All right. This is what happens when empires die. Everything breaks down, including what was once considered to be a relatively uh, smooth political process. Now, the breaking down part may not all be bad. May not all be bad. It's like, we, you know, we, we get sometimes stuck in the judgment of order. And every now and then, disorder proves to be something kind of interesting. So let's see where it goes. Sit back and watch the show. Watch Kevin McCarthy, you know, wriggle like a worm on a hook and try to, you know, get off the hook. A little shot before you, especially if you're a Democrat. Oh, you got to be loving this. <laughs> see, I told you so. All right, let's shift gears here and uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, Damar, Damar Hamlin. Damar Hamlin. It's interesting, right? He's an Aries. This gets into uh, Dr. Narco Longo territory about names matching people's astrology. So Damar is like Damars, and Damar is an Aries. It's funny, my son, who's a Pisces, <laughs> and I and I and this dawned on me uh, like I don't know a couple of weeks ago. And originally we were going to call him Finn, and think of that, right, Pisces and Finn. But I thought to myself. I don't really like that name now. Originally, I was kind of attracted to the name Finn. But I'm like, well, let's throw a griff in front of it. I'm like, yeah, that's cool. And I'm glad I did because he actually made friends with a kid named Finn. 
which is weird, right? Like how many fins are there? So he made he made a, a he made friends with the kid, and I didn't like that kid. I did not like that kid. It was kind of like it was one of those moments. Like I'm really glad I didn't name him Finn, because I'd have to think about him and this little shit fuck that was his friend, which I didn't, I didn't really like him. But it was also weird, right? Is that this family moved to next door, and their kid was named Griffin. And I didn't like him either. So I couldn't get out of it, right? I couldn't get out of like, oh, well. I liked his dad. I liked his mom. They got a divorce. We got a divorce. It must have been something in the water there. Weird, right? Only child, only child. Same name. They both get a divorce. It was Life is strange, high strange. Anyway, let's talk about Damar Hamlin. And uh, yesterday was a really interesting day in terms of people and how they are responding to this event, right? We have a little bit of, you know, air. I tried to come at it from a different perspective. I was going glass half full versus glass half empty. And there's all kinds of strange numerology around it. Like there's this one player, and um, I noticed this. Somebody brought it up in chat yesterday. And there was a player standing up in the group photo. He was the only person standing, and his number was 33. 33. And guess what his last name was? Neil. Neil. It wasn't um, K-N-E-E-L. It was N-E-A-L, but still, right? Everybody else is kneeling except for 33, and his name is Neil. Weird, right? And then Damar Hamlin's number is three, so you put them together, and you got 333. So there's all kinds of crazy gematria around this event. So wh what does it all mean? What does it all mean when you throw all this stuff together? like the dark synchro mysticism. And some of it, I've seen some Gematria shit line up crazy and nothing fucking happens. It's like, well, that's interesting. Nothing happened. At least not that we're aware of, but we live in kind of an empirical universe. So sometimes it does help when something is kind of laid out and then the thing that's associated with should theoretically cohere with what's being laid out. That's what happens in sort of the Q world where there's all this shit happening and there's all these things that are symbolic and connected in numbers. And it's, you know, but we don't see it. It's occulted. I mean, it's hidden from us, right? Unless you're following the uh, crumbs down the rabbit hole. In which case, Everything makes complete sense. So what does it all mean? What, 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 what does this mean in the context of like our so-called reality? Well, I was watching Jason Whitlock last night, and he had some really good points. Now, he loves football, and he believes that football 
and he has got a really close association with it for a couple of reasons. He played football. He got a scholarship to Ball State. Um, he was, you know, kind of an average D1 player. Was never going to play in the pros, but he played college football. And not everybody can say that. It's pretty high level, even at a place like Ball State, which is a, a D1 school. Uh, you know, it's, it's not Ohio State. But it's not even like um, University of Indiana, which is in the same conference as Ohio State. But it's still, you play at that level, you've got something, right? So he has a lot of um, allegiance to football because it helped him get a degree in journalism, which helped him move forward in his life. And so he's got an investment and he also has an investment in it from being, you know, somebody from, you know, black America. Right. And he grew up kind of at the edge of lower middle-class parents divorced. His father had a, a bar and uh, his mother moved the family into this kind of um, Irish part of town. I believe Jason grew up in Indianapolis. So he kind of had a, a slightly, you know, middle class, but he moved in with his father because he wanted to be around his father. And by no means were these people, you know, wealthy, but they weren't destitute. His mother worked hard. His father worked hard. So he got some of this work ethic from them, right? But what he saw with the NFL, what he seen, and I agree with him, is that the NFL has given an opportunity to uh, a pretty large swath of so-called Black America to come in and make money, right? Yeah, sure, it's risky. Jobs are risky. Being a fireman's risky. Being a lineman, and not an offensive lineman, but like a Wichita lineman, that's risky. Clearing trails uh, you know, on mountains, risky. Working on an oil rig, risky. Coal miners, risky. Right? There's always risk associated with certain professions, and football is one of those professions. And so you have to justify risk-reward. For some of these guys, the reward is substantial. Some of these guys have made generational money playing the sport. So Jason comes from this place where, well, they want to take it away. And I agree with him. If you, if you want to, if you want to deconstruct a country, you have to deconstruct its traditions. That's cultural Marxism and footballs in the crosshairs because it is American. Whatever you think of sports. Oh, it's just, you know, distraction, right? It's just distraction. Whatever you think of them, football is something that's embedded in the American psyche. You take that away, and what do you have? You got a bunch of fucking soccer players. And no offense to people who like soccer. I used to watch it when it was just starting off here in this country. But it's not the same. It's not the same. It's an international sport. It's a communitarian sport. 
you know, it's one of those sports where everybody gets to touch the ball, like basketball. Not everybody gets to touch the ball in football. You don't get to touch the ball in football, elite players. Not to say that defensive linemen can't be elite or offensive linemen can't be elite, but they're not engaged in touching the ball. Running backs, quarterbacks, wide receivers, tight ends, your best athletes, they get to touch the ball. In soccer, everybody touches the ball. Anyway, this thing with, with Jason's like flipping this. It's like he's looking at it and he's looking at the, the, the political ramifications and how ESPN just used this as yet another kind of woke vehicle. And they've, he, they've got these nincompoops on there, like Ryan Clark and Dominique Foxworth. Dominique Foxworth is a very confused individual, I have to say. He basically was making a case that because of this, because of this tragedy, players need to make more money. He's not even talking about the freaking tragedy. He's not even talking about the impact it has on the fan. He says, you know, this is a reason why players need to make more money. Because, well, great. But it's crass. It's a crass statement that's wrapped in concern. Right? It's like, it's like, a, it's like a shit burrito. It's like, oh, that looks really good. And you bite into it. And it's like, it's rancid. It's like, that's a rancid take. And I could, he was just trying to wrap it in this concern. It's like, you're not concerned. You're using this as a social vehicle because you're a little fucking social Marxist. Anyway, I don't want to get down the weeds too much. So is what's going on here with this whole event? Because I'm looking at it more through the dark lens today than I am through the light, through, through the, you know, kind of the brighter lens of yesterday. And I, I don't think the two are invalidate one another. I think they can, both things can be equally true. But it feels very supernatural in some ways. Right? When you get into the gematria and the numbers and all the, all the stuff that's going on with the guy, it feels supernatural. Like so, it, we cannot discount the supernatural component of what's taking place. Before I, before I get into this, I'm going to bring another player into the conversation here and something that happened pretty much at the same time. And it's almost like this event is running cover for the other event. And I don't think they said, hey, let's zap this guy with a frequency from the stands, bring him down. I don't think he's faking it. A lot of people say nothing happened. Do you know how many people would have to be like in on the conspiracy that nothing happened at that level. 9-11, you can understand why. You can understand how a bunch of people would keep their fucking mouth shut. But at this level, I'm not so sure. So I'm not going to be one of those people that said nothing happened, that he's just faking it. Like, okay, here's where you're going to go down. You're going to go down. 
with 9-11, right? 9-11 left, you know, in the quarter, you're going to go down. And all these things are going to happen. T. Higgins is going to have the same number as Chuck Hughes, who was the last player that died in an NFL game in 1971. Same number, 85. Lucky 13. It's all planned out, right? I don't think you, sometimes you can kind of get close to things like that. But I think, from what I understand, he died on that field. Um, he went about 10 minutes without oxygen, so he might be brain dead. They're keeping him alive. They've got him intubated. They're pumping oxygen. You know, this is, they don't want him to die. They want to keep him alive. They want people to think that you know, he's going to make a comeback. Who knows? Maybe they're baking a clone. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. You know, anything is possible. But one of the things that really struck me with this whole thing, and I'm going to get into the other event, by the way, but one of the things that really struck me is how people react and how they react to death. We react to death from our own perspective. You know, we, we, we personify what that might be like. Oh, there's a mother there. There's a family there. Our own mortality is uh, bound up in that event. And so we, we look at it as being tragic. Oh my God, it's tragic. Look at this tragedy. And I'm not saying it's not. Anytime a parent loses a kid, for the parent, it's very difficult. It's I, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. It's one of the worst things I think that could happen. A parent losing a child. The, the, the parent outliving a child. I think it's terrible. Right? But that's what people relate to. That's where they go. They They empathize with that. Oh, and even I empathize with it. But then they empathize with their own mortality. And who's to say that wherever he is, he's not in a better place, right? We, we, we project our own attachments in a lot of ways onto people and events because it's about our vulnerability and our mortality that makes this thing pop, whether it's really sitting right in front of your face or it's kind of rattling around somewhere inside of you and it's making some noise. And in a lot of ways, I feel like it's a very egocentric position. People die. And this is not to besmirch the young man or his family, but one, it, it, this, it, the same thing was happening with COVID. In a lot of ways, I think this is kind of a hangover from the COVID effect because all of a sudden people became like their anuses clinched because they didn't want to die. They didn't want somebody else killing them. They didn't want a family member bringing the plague home for Thanksgiving. And all of a sudden people became very invested in their own mortality, but they became invested in a way that was inverted. They didn't become invested in, I want to live more. I want to have a better life. I want to look at what's going on and elevate my existence so I can get more out of this. No, 
the exact opposite happened. People got shoved in their homes. They, 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 a lot of them gave up. A lot of them cut ties. And, and it had to do with the fact that we were dealing with collective mortality. That was the Saturn-Pluto conjunction in Capricorn. Brought us right into the nape of cultural, societal, family, and personal death. And we haven't recovered from it. So when we have an event like this, what does it do? It brings up trauma. Oh, my God, like the deaths of COVID. And by the way, COVID is a story here. Let's not undersell that. It is a story. But it has to do with our relationship with death. And we are terrified of death. We're terrified of it. Hell, even I'm scared of death every now and then, right? It's inevitable. And so what do we do? We, you know, oh, this is a tragedy. This is this, and this is that. And this is, it's like, you know what? It's part of, it's part of life. And it's part of death. And we're not right with death. We are not right with death. And we have death all around us. The system is, is dying. People are dying. And we're completely in denial of that. And this is another exercise in denial. It became fucking political. A political talking point. And the, the real conversation we should be having is, are we okay with death? Where are, where are you? Where are we with death? If you were to pop out of here tomorrow, knock on wood, right? But if you were to pop, would you be ready to go? Would you be like, okay, I've made peace with my life. I've made peace with the people of my life. I've made peace with my decisions and choices. Would you be ready to do that? We never have that discussion. Never. So when it comes up, people begin to realize how much they haven't resolved. But they'll never go there and break that down and digest it. They just won't. Isn't that right? Look who's here. Yes. That's a problem. That's a bigger problem than any of this is that we do not have a correct relationship with this part of our experience. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that we worship youth. You know, we just worship youth. We've all, you know, we're country, we're culture that once you get past 28, 29, you're kind of fucked, right? So there was this other guy that that uh, he died the same time. The same time. So I can find him. So check this out. See, this is where the supernatural part of this whole thing comes in. It's also very Gemini-esque, right? Former NFL player who called for the unvaccinated to be jailed die suddenly at 38. This is a guy, I know a lot of players. I never really. Uchi Nawaneri, a former Jaguars offensive lineman, died suddenly at his wife's home on Friday. The team announced Monday he was 38. Nawaneri passed away 
at his wife's home in West Lafayette, Indiana. That's Jason of Whitlock territory. After driving up from Georgia for the holidays, she discovered him unresponsive at 1 a.m. in a bedroom. Preliminary reports, autopsy results said Nguyenieri may have died from a heart attack caused by an enlarged heart. Nguyenieri was remembered as a tremendous player and a strong leader in the locker room. He was selected by the Jaguars in the fifth round of the 2007 NFL Draft. The Dallas area native ended his career with Dallas Cowboys in 2014 so we played a saturn cycle seven years in twitter posts no one yeri lashed out at people who refused to take the covid mrna vaccine the former purdue guard was very vocal was a very vocal pro-vaccine advocate who called for the unvaccinated to be arrested and jailed okay so let's get these vaccine mandates and passports up and running asap we've seen children die daily from the unvaccinated selfishness, pregnant women at risk to protect life, mandate the vaccine, jail anyone who refuses to protect life. That tweet did not age well. On the behalf of the Jaguars organization and my family, our thoughts are with Uchi's family and friends at this terrible time, tweeted Tony Khan. The Jaguars chief football strategy officer, and son of Shadcom. You know, this terrible time. Yeah, yeah, you lose people. You know, we lose people along the way. I lost my father, right? A lot of people, and Wendy, in the, who's listening in chat, lost her daughter, right? It's not easy, especially when you lose a kid. That's hard. I think it's one of the hardest things. But one of our challenges is that we do not have a correct or right relationship with death. We just don't. And that's why these things come up. And yeah, sure, you'll miss that person. But you know, there are people that have kind of ongoing relationships with people who are in their body. And it's, it's a very limited view in a lot of ways. It's a very mechanistic, 3D, Lockean, you know, the Saturnian hypercube box. And we're not going to get anywhere until we understand our relationship with death better. We, we won't. Because everything is predicated on our fear of dying. The political system, our money system, our consumption system our relationship system, it's all predicated on the fear of dying. And that fear is played upon by third parties whenever they want to. So fundamentally, as a culture, in general, as a plant, look, different cultures have different relationships with death. But as a culture, we need to re- revisit our relationship with death because it is really in a lot of ways um, a very codependent ball and chain around our feet and the reason why it's a paradox because in a lot of ways we also have investment in life we have investment in life and so if you have investment in life well, this other thing that you're not dealing with on a, you know, 
semi-regular or conscious basis, once it comes up, it really rocks your world. So how do we have an equal amount of investment in life and death to have one foot in this world and one in the other, which is what Jesus said, right? I don't necessarily have the answer to that, but that's our own individual journey. And until we resolve, resolve this culturally, we're not, all these events are going to have massive power over us. And it doesn't matter what they are. They'll have massive power over us. Once we resolve that, they'll have no power over us. None whatsoever. And I'm not talking about having a wanton and careless and reckless relationship with life and you don't care about other lives. You're just going to, you know, start, you know, popping people. No, that's not what I'm talking about because that's death too, right? But that's an un, un, unconscious relationship with death because you don't care about life. You don't care about another life. You don't even care about your own life. Anyway, it's something to think about. And this is not what's being talked about at all. Prayers, prayers, and they're good, right? But it's not about our relationship with our spirits and our souls as eternal vehicles that move on, right? If he's gone, he's probably in a better place, unless he's in Howdy's world. Um, shout out to Howdy. Love you, Howdy. Anyway, that's it for today. Use your head in order to serve your really hard as possible. I'm Robert Phoenix. Thank you for being here. We'll see you guys tomorrow at 8 a.m. over on the Astro Weather, and uh, we'll see you here tomorrow. 9-11. Ciao for now.